God has a way of getting our attention. You see, these folks were sowing much, but they were reaping little. And some of you are killing yourself, putting in a 50 and 60 and 70 hour week. And you get your wives out there another 30 and 40 hours a week. And you're making more and more and more, but it seems to be put into a bag with holes in it. As soon as you get that raise, it seems like it's gone. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, a daily walk through the Bible with Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. As children of God, we are told not to lay up for ourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Rather, we are to lay up treasures in heaven. For where our treasure is, so also is our heart. These words of Jesus were born out of necessity. The people in Jesus' day, just like we today, placed emphasis on earthly possessions over the blessings of serving the Lord of hosts. Almost 600 years before Jesus, God reminded us of where our priorities should lie working through the prophet Haggai. And he commanded the Israelites to forego their own selfish ways and to build a temple to the Lord. As we continue our look at this minor prophet, Dr. Brogy examines today why it is that the Israelites had felt it was not time to build the temple. Now, why is it that the people started so strong and then got sidetracked to the point where they are so apathetic and they say, it's just not time? Well, go back to Ezra 4, if you will. Ezra chapter 4. And listen to what he says in verses 1 through 5 of that chapter. Ezra 4, verses 1 through 5. He says, now when the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the people of the exile were building a temple to the Lord God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel in the heads of father's households and said to them, let us build with you, for we like you. We want to seek your God. And we have been sacrificing to him since the days of Ishahadon, king of Assyria, who brought us up here. But Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the rest of the heads of the fathers' households of Israel said to them, you have nothing in common with us in building a house to our God. These folks were pagans, and these two guys knew it. But we ourselves will together build to the Lord God of Israel as King Cyrus, king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and frightened them from building and hired counselors against them to frustrate their counsel all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And so these guys hired some professional counselors. They went out among the people, discouraged the people, said, you guys don't want to build. You can't do it. You shouldn't do it. And the folks ended up dropping the work. That's a good reminder to you and I. Ephesians chapter 6 says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against people. It's against powers and principalities and rulers, against spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Our war is not simply as God's people against other people. It's against spiritual forces of wickedness that are operating in the lives of unsaved people. And you and I need to understand that every time we make a commitment to follow through a spiritual priority, inevitably Satan is going to try to do something through one of his people to discourage us. 
Now, we don't need to fear that. The Bible says, greater is he, the Lord Jesus, that is in you than he that is in the world. But we need to realize that opposition is going to come. And just because it comes, it doesn't mean it's a closed door, that God doesn't want you to do something in some particular thing. Now, many a Christian think it is. Opposition comes and they say, it mustn't be the will of God. Friend, opposition many times comes directly from the devil. Have you ever noticed that every time you, you go to have a quiet time, it seems like something comes up? Have you noticed that you, you, you set aside some time to pray and, and something goes wrong? You try to plan to do something with God's people and some enticement from the world comes along? It might be something as harmless as a good old football game. But listen... The good sometimes can be the enemy of the best. Now, we don't have a Sunday evening service, so you don't have to worry about that tonight, all right? <laughs> but there's always something that will interfere with spiritual priorities. And when you allow those things to divert your spiritual priorities, when you're going to be in a time of need, your spiritual reservoir is going to be low. Listen, we've got all the time in the world to do the will of God. God has given all of us 168 hours in which to function and we can get diverted sometimes and we can rationalize our behavior and we can make all kinds of excuses, but that time is going to be lost. It's going to be gone. You can never recoup that time no matter how much you regret the loss. It, feeling bad over the loss of that time is not going to change anything. It's like kids growing up. Your kids can grow up and you can realize that you didn't spend enough time with them, you didn't invest into their life, but there's absolutely nothing you can do to recoup that time that has already been lost. And so these folks, notice what they say. They say it's not time. That's their rationalization. But I also want you to see the reasoning of the Lord. So God through Haggai speaks to the people about their priorities. Notice verse 3. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you, yourselves, to dwell in your paneled houses while this house, my temple, lies desolate? The people were saying, It's not time. And God reminds them, A whole lot depends on how you define time. And so he tells Haggai, you ask the people, you ask the people to evaluate how they're using their time because I've seen their homes. And their homes aren't just four walls painted white. Man, their homes are nice. They've got paneling in it. And in that day, that was a luxury because you had to import that kind of timber to have that in your homes. And God is saying, man, these people, they don't just have the necessities, they have the extras, and they tell me that they don't have the time and the money to do my work. Let me bring it up to date. These people have got their microwaves and trash compactors, their stereos, their VCRs, their camcorders, their computers. And so God says, explain to me why it's not time. What these people were really saying is, I don't have time for God because I've only got time for what's important for me. It's not an issue of time. Haggai wants us to see it's an issue of priorities. It's not an issue of I can't. It's an issue of I won't. You've got all the time in the world to do what's important to you. A husband says, I don't have time for my wife and kids. 
That just depends on where your wife and kids fall in your priority list. I don't have time for Bible study. I don't have time for prayer. I don't have time to come to church. I don't have time to do the things of the Lord. And God says, but you've got time to watch a football game. You've got time to play a round of golf. You've got time to go to the mall and go shopping and hunting and fishing. But you don't have time for the things that concern me. And so God is saying to this people, if you don't have time to rebuild the temple, how did all that paneling get on the walls of your houses? If you don't have time to give a tithe to your local church where it belongs, then how did that new car get in your driveway? Why do you have that new bedroom suit? Why is it that your house can go up, God says? In my house, my temple is ignored. God is saying, you say you don't have time, but man, you're having a good time and it's all on time. It's in the Bible. It's right there. You look at it. God is saying your priorities are showing. Your priorities are showing. And these people were robbing God, the one who demanded number one priority in our lives. God doesn't want second place, folks. He wants to be number one. And if he's not number one, if he's not the one that motivates you, that drives you, that enthuses you, that is the heartbeat of your life, what you are living for, God is going to deal with us. You can rationalize all you want. And friend, these folks were religious. They, they were involved in the sacrificial system of this day. They were religious, but God wasn't number one. You can come here every week and sit here. That doesn't mean God's number one in your life. Now, don't misunderstand me. God doesn't condemn these folks because they live in paneled houses. He doesn't condemn you because you may be wealthy. He doesn't condemn you because you move from one socioeconomic level to the next. That doesn't bother God. What bothers him is the issue of priorities. Listen, everything you and I have this morning is given to us from God. You say, but I worked hard for what I have. You may have, friend, but God gave you the gifts. God gave you the ability. God gave you the physical strengths. It is all sourced in God, and you have what you have because of him. Now notice what he says in verse 5. Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. God is exhorting these people. He says, think about this time that you say you don't have. Roll these truths over in your mind. Verse 6. You have sown much, but harvest little. You eat, but there's not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there is not enough to become drunk. God's not endorsing drunkenness here, by the way. He's just saying, if you wanted to get drunk, you don't have enough to do it. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. Because these people had given God second place, because they were preoccupied with their material pursuits, God had to discipline them. He had to judge the very thing they were living for. And they had a poor harvest. He says, you have sown much, but you harvest little. Man, these folks were working harder and harder and harder, but they weren't getting ahead. You eat, but there's not enough to be satisfied. Drink, but not enough to be full. You put on clothing, but you're not warm enough. These people were shot through with inflation. You know, he adds these words, I think, almost as if they were written for our own generation. And he who earns, earn wa earns wages to put into a purse with holes. There's more money coming in, but it's not coming in fast enough. And on top of inflation, there's depression. Notice verse 9. You look for much, but behold, it comes to little. 
When you bring it home, I blow it away. It's got kind of a modern ring to it, doesn't it? Have you ever discovered this in your experience? God has a fantastic way when you're knocking yourself out with three jobs only to make all that you earn to pour it into a bag with holes into it. About four and a half years ago, I was in Dallas and I was getting my tonsils out. They really weren't giving me a problem. I didn't have the sore throats, but sometimes in adults, they get pitted and they give you terrible breath. The, the doctor and Mrs. Ferry can tell you about this. They have to deal with that every week. And friend, if you're a preacher, it's a lethal combination. So, you know, years past, I thought when I was sharing the gospel with people, and they made all these contortions in their face that they were under conviction, but I was really just blowing them away. <laughs> so here I am in the hospital, and this there nurse comes in with a pill to give to me, and then she says, I'll be right back for an enema. And I think to myself, I'm here to get my tonsils out, not to get my kidneys operated on. And this guy in the bed next to me, I mean, he's breaking up laughing. She comes back, and I said, will you check that order once more? And she comes back about five minutes later, and it's for him. And he's not <laughs> laughing anymore. Now, I had tried to witness to this guy about his spiritual condition. And he basically says, hey, that's good enough for you. That's all right. But I don't need all this religious stuff. Well, a few hours later, the anesthesiologist comes in. He makes him sign this form. Well, why do I have to sign this? Well, in the event of your death, we don't hold the hospital or myself responsible. And then a few hours later, the cardiologist comes in, and he begins to explain the surgery that's going to be done on this man and some of the risks that are involved. This guy says to me before he goes down to surgery, would you mind praying for me? You know, God has a way of getting our attention. You see, these folks were sowing much, but they were reaping little. And some of you are killing yourself, putting in a 50 and 60 and 70 hour a week, and you get your wives out there another 30 and 40 hours a week, and you're making more and more and more, but it seems to be put into a bag with holes in it. As soon as you get that raise, it seems like it's gone. And there's a principle here that we need to recognize. We need to recognize that our God is over our lives if we're one of his people. You don't have more just because you sow more. You have only more by the grace of God because he provides more. You see, these folks were sowing 100 acres of corn and God was blowing through a storm on it where they could only reap 25. They were sowing a whole lot but enjoying only a little. And one of the ways that God often gets the attention of his people is through the pocketbook. Remember we saw the same problem with the group that came back with Nehemiah, Malachi's preaching in his day, and he says, will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. How have we robbed thee? In tithes and offerings. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. God says, see if I won't bless you. And then he says, see if I will not rebuke the devourer for you, that if I will not destroy those things that are destroying the fruits of your ground. Listen to your pastor this morning. If God is not first in your life, he is going, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, to deal with you. He is going to get your attention. And friend, I hope you don't wake up someday because these folks had progressed. God let them go in their disobedience to the point where they had prospered, made enough money, had peddling in their homes, and then God said, enough is enough. 
and you may go right along and wake up one day only to discover that you've put it into a bag that has holes in it, that it's gone right down the drain. And so God says a second time, notice verse 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Think about it once more. You've been so busy in your own selfish pursuits. Consider your ways. And so in verse 8, he says, in essence, get your priorities in order. Go up to the mountains. Bring wood and rebuild the temple that I may be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. The reason you are to prioritize God, the reason he is to be number one in your life, is so, as verse 8 says here, that he might be glorified. The reason he created you, the reason he redeemed you, saved you, made you, was so that he might be glorified through your life. And if you are serving yourself, it will never happen. God designed you to bring glory to himself. The purpose of this church is to glorify God. Notice verse 9. You look for much, but behold, it comes to little. When you bring it home, your take-home pay comes in, I blow it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because my house lies desolate while each of you runs to his own house. These people were saying, man, I've got to take care of my place. I need to be sitting in my house on my furniture. Never mind the work of the Lord. It's not time yet. And we say today, I can't go to church on Sunday because I need to lay in my bed. I can't get out and talk to my next door neighbor about Jesus Christ because I need to lay, lay in my chair and watch my TV. And I can't give to the work of the Lord because I need a nicer chair to live in. And you can sing all you want to God be the glory. But unless you are obeying what he says, he is not glorified by your life. It's just lip service in God's mind. Now, unfortunately, in our own self-centered way. We say, God, bless me first, and then I'll do what you want me to do. That doesn't take any faith, and without faith, it's impossible to please God. That's disobedience. And God, now catch this, God is not saying if you obey him, he's going to necessarily make you rich. Now, he may prosper you to a certain level. He may prosper you to a certain neighborhood. He may prosper you to a certain socioeconomic influence because he wants to use you in that place to touch those people's lives for Jesus Christ. He does that not because you're better than anybody else. He does it because he has a will and a purpose and a plan for your life and the lives of other people. But you can say, I'm going to put God second. And God will deal with you. Notice what he says in verse 10. Therefore, because of the sky, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I called for a drought on the land, and on the mountains, and on the grain, and on the new wine, and on the oil, and on what the ground produces, on men, on cattle, and on all the labor of your hands. Make no mistake. Certainly we live in a fallen world and some of the problems that we face, the, the things that will wipe out a farmer's crops are just because we live in a fallen world and it's a reminder to us. But listen, sometimes the things that we see come from the hand of God himself. Look at chapter 2 and verse 17. I smote you in every work of your hands with blasting wind, mildew, and hail, yet you did not come back to me, declares the Lord. God called for the drought. God called for the layoff. God called for the hyperinflation, he's saying here. So Haggai, he wants us to see the rationalization of the people. It's not time. 
He wants us to see the reasoning of the Lord. It is time, and I need to help you to understand that. Finally, look at the response of the people. Verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, in Joshua, not the son of Nun, the one in the Old Testament earlier, but the son of Jehoshadak, a thousand years later, the high priest with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people showed reverence for the Lord. We can say we're reverencing God all we want. We can come to this church all that we want. We can say amen all that we want and sing those hymns all we want. But if we are not obeying God, we are not reverencing Him. And it's only after the people make a decision to get right with God that God puts His blessing on these people. Notice verse 13. Then, and only then, Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke by the commission of the Lord to the people saying, I am with you. And listen, when God says, I am with you, you can't lose. When God's hand is on your life, you can't lose. The people say, it is time to obey God. And God says, it's time to bless. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners. Purify your hearts, James says. Because he says to be in love with the world is to be at hostility with God. The world in its, in its riches. Now, this is what we saw in the book of Jude. God is not saying, I love you more when you obey, and therefore I'm going to bless you more. If you are a believer this morning in Jesus Christ, there's nothing you can do to make God love you more, and there's nothing you can do to make God love you less. He loves you because your lovability is based on the righteousness that He has credited to your account through Jesus Christ in His finished work. But Jude says, keep yourselves in the love of God. He says, keep yourself in the sphere where God can bless you because God doesn't work against your will. God wants to allow his people to experience his hand, his blessing, but he, don't, he does not do it with a disobedient people. And so notice what he says in verse 14. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked in the house of the Lord their God on the 24th day of the sixth month. You might want to write in your margin, October 21st, 520 B.C. These folks had been playing around for 16 years. But now, after hearing the prophet's message, 21 days later, they say, we're going to do what God says. Now, there's an Old Testament picture here of a New Testament concept. When we bring our will in line with the will of God, when I'm a rebel, I turn my will against the face of God. But when I bring my will in line with the will of God, God has freedom through the Spirit of God in me to produce His life, to carry out His work, to empower me to do with whatever pleases Him to do. And as these people who had been disobedient for 14 years come and get their will in line with God's will, then the Spirit of God stirs up these folks. He gives them the zeal and the desire and the power to obey God and to do what He says. Now listen, I don't know what God is stirring in your heart for you to do, but we don't have all eternity to pull this job off. A day is coming when our opportunity is gone and it's lethal to procrastinate. It's possible to have a saved soul, but to have a lost life. 
because you've invested it in things that are temporal. And so Jesus says to his people, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Suppose I could say to you definitely this morning that you have four months to live and I have it based on the finest medical evidence. What would you do? When I was in Texas, I had the opportunity to lead a 65-year-old businessman to Christ. And this guy came to our church and was so excited coming to the new Christians class that I was teaching. He just took off following the Lord. Six weeks later, he came into the class one morning and he said, Carl, I found out this week that my body is ravaged with cancer and they give me four months to live. Four months. He said, you know, I went home and all of a sudden there's golf clubs and that beautiful gun collection that I've worked 30 years on and all the stuff in my house took on a whole different meaning. I said, Bill, thank God that you're a believer in Christ. Make the next four months count for him. Six weeks later, I attended the man's funeral. Now, what if I told you that on the basis as your physician, you've got four months to live. Would you do it any differently? I hope not. I hope you could say, Pastor, Jesus Christ is number one in my life. I'm investing my life for Him. I am living for Him. That's Haggai's first sermon to us. And it's a sermon on priorities. The people rationalize, it's not time. God reasons, it is time. Let me help you understand. And the people say, God, you got through. It's time. Now, I find it fascinating that 26 times in these 38 verses, we're told that this message is sourced in God. I don't know of another book in the whole Old Testament where just about every other verse, thus saith the Lord, declares the Lord, came through God. I'll tell you why God did it, I think. Because here was a group of people, man, they looked it around. They said, oh, man, too bad the drought's here. Oh, hell, you know, that's one of the things with living in a fallen world. You know, creation fell. Moses told us that. And they looked around and they couldn't see the hand of God on their lives. And it's like God was trying to hit them over the head with a two by four. This is from me. Don't miss it. If we put God first in our personal lives, if we put God first in our family lives, if this church puts God first, if He is the number one priority in our life, then God will prioritize us. Are you listening this morning to me? Listen, I don't know. Maybe there's a hollow space in your heart and you've accumulated all kinds of junk. But inside, you're not satisfied and fulfilled. My friend, only Jesus Christ can fill that vacuum as you allow him to be first in your life. And he is our creator. He is our redeemer. He is our Lord. And he deserves full allegiance. We are told by John in the book of Revelation that the time is near for the Lord's return. And if you've not yet committed your life to Jesus before his return, it will be too late. Today is the day of your salvation. If you'd like to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior and have the assurance that when you die, you will go to heaven, let us send you a pamphlet and message entitled, Would You Like God as Your Friend? 
This booklet and the accompanying message will show you some spiritual truths that have been handed down to us from God. Just call Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and request Would You Like to Know God as Your Friend? If you already know the Lord, this package is great for helping you share your testimony with those who've not yet committed themselves to Christ. Just call us at 877-787-7478 and we'll send it to you at no cost and without obligation. Tomorrow, Carl continues his look at the prophet Haggai and takes up the problem of discouragement. Join us then as we search the scriptures.